0: Good afternoon, Memorial Baptist friends and family, uh, and welcome back to our midweek edition of our podcast for June 10th, 2020. I hope everyone had a very blessed Lord's Day this past Sunday. Memorial Baptist Church met for morning worship for the first time since the sheltering in order took place 12 weeks ago. What a great day it truly was as we gathered with our church family and set aside some time worshiping our Lord together. Most of the time, we really don't appreciate what we have until it's gone, but oh man, it was so good to be with everybody and to, to worship together. I was so blessed to be among saints. Our worship team did a fantastic job leading us in worship. Our church family participated and sang with such enthusiasm I'm so looking forward to our meeting again at Memorial this, uh, this coming Sunday, June 14th, 10.45 a.m. And we're also planning uh, to receive the Lord's Supper the following week, on June 21st. Uh, we'll be still practicing the distancing strategies, and probably will for some time yet, even as we congregate for corporate worship. I hope to see you there this Sunday. We're continuing to monitor and, <clears throat> excuse me, evaluate our community and uh, our entire area as we seek to reopen other aspects of our ministry at Memorial. Um, our deacons and leadership will meet again um, on June 23rd to discuss moving into Phase Three of our uh, plan to reopen. This will include our connect groups, meeting in person, our Wednesday evening activities, coming back uh, to meeting at the church, things like uh, team kids and established youth, college ministry, and our midweek uh, prayer service resuming. We will not be able to have uh, nursery or child care and or food service at, at this point, We anticipate returning to our Wednesday evening family supper when we move into phase four of our plan. As I've said before, if you have questions or concerns, please call us. I know this isn't easy for any of us. We're trying to do our best to keep our people and our most vulnerable ones safe as we open up slowly and cautiously. Again, if you have questions or concerns, please call us. Now before we jump into our scripture passage for tonight I I would like to pray together and uh, I would like for you to pray with me uh, while I lead us in prayer. Almighty God and everlasting Father, I just want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for all that you do for us every day. Father, you are holy, you are righteous. Uh, you are the one true God. And uh, Father, there is none beside you, and you and you alone are worthy of our praise. I just want to thank you for being our Father. Um, You're a good, good Father. I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, for uh, what you've done as our our Savior on Calvary, dying for our sins, paying the debt. Uh, Father, I thank you for for Jesus and what he means to each one of us. Also, Father, I want to thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit, uh, the one who, who guides us into all truth and helps us as we uh, seek to to do your will. Uh, Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you also for our families, uh, for our children and grandchildren, our spouses. Uh, what a What a great thing you did when you created families, Lord. Um, we're thankful for each one of them. I know that, uh, I'm thankful for also our church family, the body of Christ, how you have brought us together and planted us in this body. And Father, we are thankful for each and every one. Uh, we each bring different, um, gifts to the table. And so we're thankful for the, the gifting that the Holy Spirit gives to each one of us, um. Thank you for, for loving us and, and binding us together in unity. Thank you for how you guide us and lead us each day. Uh, I just want to thank you, Father, for the health and the, the healing that you bring. Um, I want to lift up at this time also those who are hurting um, within our body. I lift up Dr. Edna Bridges um, in the homegoing of her dear husband, bobby bridges i know their family is hurting and i pray that you would just comfort them during this time of grief uh the we know that he's with you but father the separation is very real so i pray for edna i pray that you would bless her um draw her close to you i pray father for bill blankenship i i I know he's had a, a blood clot in his leg and i pray that you would uh heal his body. I pray, Father, that you would give the doctors wisdom. We we believe, Father, that you are able to heal and restore, so I pray that you would do that for Bill. I know that it's tough being away from his wife and family, so I pray that you would just touch his life, Father. Lord, I want to lift up the Morehouse family to you. I know they've had a, a great burden they've been carrying. Um, I pray for Christy. I pray for Anthony. I pray for their children, I ask, Father, that you would just be in and through all of that situation. Uh, God, that you would receive glory from it. And, Father, that you would use this uh, to bring glory to your name. I pray for healing. I ask, Father, for complete restoration um, and, a, and a wonderful testimony of your grace and mercy in their family. Father, I want to lift up John Webb's grandson, Jacob, to you. Um, I can't even imagine um, what what's going through their minds. and I pray for his parents, Jacob and Gina. I pray, Father, that you would give the doctors wisdom as they uh, do the surgery and as they um, try to figure out what's going on. But I pray, Father, for healing for him, uh, for this 17-year-old who's got his life before him. I pray, Father, that you would make a way where there seems to be no way. God, that your hand would guide the hands of the surgeons. God, that you would just bring about a great healing and testimony in his life. We know that you are more than able, God. And you you can do more than we could ever think or ask. But we're asking, God, knowing that you are able. Father, I just want to lift up Wayne and Gladys Cobb to you. Um, I pray, Father, that you would just give them your grace, your mercy, your peace, I pray, Father, that you would continue to show yourself mighty in Wayne's life. and Father, that you would just comfort Gladys during this time and the rest of their family. Father, I want to lift up our homebound to you. I pray that they would sense your presence with them even now. Um, That wherever they're at, whatever they're doing, that they would recognize and sense you, Father, in the room with them. I pray for our nursing home residents Father those that are um in the nursing home they they cannot leave they're they're quarantined in and father i pray that you would just uh, be with them in a special way father i i want to lift up uh, ray smith to you i pray father that you would just continue to strengthen him i pray for elida i pray that you would bless them and their children i ask father that you would be with um, other residents that are members of our church that we know, that are that are in nursing homes all over this area, and I pray that you would bless them. I think of Pat Seebeck. I, I pray, Father, for her. Um, I ask, God, that you would just be with them in a special way. Father, I want to thank you for our worship time together on Sundays. We've all missed it. God, you are a gracious God, and you love us. We thank you for your guidance. We thank you for your provision. Father, I want to pray for our nation. Um, I ask for you, O God, to heal our land. We need you. I pray that you would bring unity where there has been division. Father, I I ask that you would bring peace where there has been chaos. Push back the enemy, the devil, the liar, who is stirring up strife in our country and in the body of Christ. Father, I pray that you would guide our president and our leaders to do the right things. Father, that would honor you. I pray, Father, that you would help those who honor you and glorify you. I pray that you would bless those, Father, who serve you. Lord, help each of us to diligently pray and to to do the things that, that we know are right. And Father, that you would be in and through all of it. It is our joy to pray. It is our our privilege. And Father, we are thankful that you hear our prayers. Guide us as we continue to seek you. Father, reveal to us and guide us into all truth, Holy Spirit, as we read your word. We love you and we praise you. Thank you for this time together. Encourage our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6 tonight, and uh, we're going to be in uh, verses 13 through 20, and I just want to make some commentary here that um, this this part of chapter 6 serves as the conclusion uh, to a digression from the author of Hebrews, which began back in chapter 5, verse 11. The author has presented a a powerful demonstration of the sufficiency of God, uh, the Son, in in chapters 1 and 2 of of Hebrews, and then drew our attention to the deficiency of men in chapters 3 and 4. The writer did so by means of the example of the first generation of Israelites to leave Egypt, and by the lessons of failure from Psalm 95. The writer proceeds to show how God's son is the solution to our dilemma by becoming our great high priest, uh, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, a digression was necessary because of the condition of the original recipients of this letter. They were not accustomed to teaching beyond a very elementary level. And so teaching about Melchizedek was going to be a real stretch for all of them. And the author's analysis of the situation is recorded in chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. And, and basically he's saying that the readers uh, of the book of Hebrews, the original recipients, are used to kind of, uh, I want to say, lucky charms, if you will, teaching, rather than ham and eggs, uh, hash brown and toast teaching. And so uh, because of this, the author lays out his approach which is to leave behind the elementary teachings and and to press on uh, to teach those things which lead to maturity. And that's what that's what he says in verses uh, 6 uh, chapter 6 verse 1 through 3. And then last week we kind of got to the Hebrews uh 6 uh 4 through 8 which is uh, the thorny if you will portion of this digression with various interpretations as we discussed last week. You know, I'm inclined at this moment to see this paragraph as referring to those who have uh, come close to faith and have even enjoyed some of the benefits of association with the gospel and with the Christian community, but have never truly come to faith. And in the end, these are the folks who more actively reject and oppose the gospel. So at some point, known only to God, their fate is to be forever condemned and without a further opportunity for repentance. Folks, that is a hard word. See, I would differ slightly with those Calvinists who hold to this view in that I see these condemned folks as the source of the false teaching in the church, which sought to turn others back to Judaism, and so to join them in falling away, if you will, in the faith. Um, Having issued a solemn warning to those Outside the faith, the author is quick in verses nine through twelve to reassure his readers that he is assured that they that the writer is assured of better things concerning their salvation. In particular, their lives have demonstrated uh, service uh, to the saints, manifesting the love which should characterize those who are followers of Jesus. You know, our Lord said in John 13, verse 35, He said, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, this display of love has continued to the present, and the author hopes that it will continue on. So he urges them to persevere in the faith with all diligence so that they may realize the full assurance of their hope up to the very end. This will remedy the problem of sluggishness and will be evident as they imitate others such as Abraham in patiently enduring until the end and inheriting God's promises. Verse 12 says, so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who Through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So our passage of scripture today is Hebrews six thirteen through twenty, and it presents God's promises, particularly uh, those sealed with an oath, as the basis for our hope and perseverance. I believe it also presents a greater assurance of hope as the result of faithful endurance. In the tests and trials of life, you know, as the author comes to the end of this section, he very neatly returns back to the subject of Melchizedek, his point of departure uh, back in chapter five, verse eleven. So let's read the text, and this is what God's word says in Hebrews chapter six, verse thirteen, and following. Says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them, An oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to To the order of Melchizedek. You know, I've benefited greatly from uh, some of Stephen Cole's clarified teaching on this passage, and I just want to give him some credit there. And uh, I believe that you will uh, as well. You know, (laughs) I love to fish, and uh, I enjoy it immensely. Uh, And fishermen tend to be incurable optimists. You know, a guy asked his neighbor how uh, the fishing was going. And he said, better. Last week I went out for four hours and I didn't catch a thing. Yesterday I got the same result in only three hours. (laughs) You know, many confuse optimism and biblical hope. See, biblical hope is optimistic, but it differs greatly from worldly optimism, or what we might call positive thinking. Biblical hope is an optimism based on certainty and truth, not on a cheery disposition that looks on the bright side. If hope rests on mere fantasy, it is worthless. You know, to be valid, hope must be based on truth and certainty. Since our God is the God of hope, according to Romans 15, 13, we who represent him to this hopeless world must be people of hope. Not mere optimists, but people filled with hope because of the certainty of God's promises in Jesus Christ. See, the author of Hebrews was writing to people who were facing hardship and persecution because of their Christian faith. A few were tempted to abandon Christ and return to Judaism. And he's urging them to persevere by putting their focus on the superiority of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has provided. He's trying to instill in them a biblical hope, not just a positive, cheerful disposition, but a steady attitude of joy based on the promises of God, which cannot lie. So he uses a metaphor used really only here in the Bible. It's a metaphor of an anchor. But instead of going down into the ocean, this anchor goes up into the heavens, behind the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. He's become our high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So he brings this discussion back to where he left off before his lengthy exhortation. In the next chapter, he will develop this theme even more. But here he is saying the certain hope of our future salvation is an anchor to steady our souls while we wait on God in present storms. See, the main reason a ship needs an anchor is to ride out storms so that it's not blown off course or into the rocks or the jagged reefs, excuse me, reefs nearby. Even in a safe harbor, A ship needs an anchor so that it will not drift or hit something and sink. Whether in the storms of life or in the harbor, during the calm times of life, we all need an anchor for our souls so that we do not destroy our lives. See, verse 19, I'm kind of backing into this passage. So verse 19 begins, which we have. That's what the Greek text says. You know, Some understand the antecedent to be strong encouragement. Others think that it is hope. Still others think that since Jesus himself is our hope, that he is our anchor. And all of these views are somewhat overlapping, and I want to say complementary. I mean, God's sure promises give us strong encouragement. To take hold of the hope set before us, And in the final sense, we do not hope in hope itself, but in Jesus Christ and all that is promised in Him. But it seems to me that the anchor is the certain hope of salvation that God has provided in Jesus Christ. In the storms of life, if we take hold of the hope of His salvation, we will have the steadiness for our souls that we need In order to endure, see, understand this that the hope of our future salvation is certain. It's for sure. The author hammers home the absolute certainty of our salvation. He uses Abraham as an example of those who, through faith and patience, endured and inherited the promises. He goes back to Genesis 22, 16, and 17, where after Abraham, you remember, he displayed his faith in God by his willingness to sacrifice Isaac, the son of promise. And God swore by himself, saying, surely he would bless Abraham and to multiply his descendants. And then the author applies this to the heirs of the promise namely believers in Jesus Christ, and he gives four reasons why our hope of salvation in Christ is certain. See, our hope of future salvation is certain because God's promises have never failed any that trusted in them. Folks, that is huge. Abraham is exhibit A, if you will, of a man who trusted God against all odds and found him to be faithful. Paul called Abraham the father of all who believe and added in hope against hope he believed in Romans 4, verse 11 and verse 18. See, Abraham's life is the story of God initiating and promising and then Abraham responding in faith. God appeared to Abraham while he was still called Abram, living in Ur of the Chaldees. He commanded Abram to leave his relatives in that city and go to a place that God would show him. We read about that in Acts 7, 2-3. through Abram's obedience was not easy, in that day you didn't just pack up a U-Haul and head out on the interstate, keeping in touch with the folks back home through frequent emails and phone calls. To move hundreds of miles away meant permanent separation from family and friends, and there were unknown hardships to be encountered. Would the people of the new land be hostile or friendly? Could you provide adequately for your family once you got there? What about learning a new language? There weren't real estate offices to help you get resettled into a new home. Where would you live? But here's the deal. Abram obeyed. God had promised to multiply Abram, making him the father of a multitude. His name, Abram, meant exalted father. But his wife, Sarah, was barren. They were getting up in years, and, he, and they had no children in spite of God's promise. Can you imagine the encounters he had as he and Sarah moved into Canaan? This 75-year-old man says, Hello, my name's Abram, exalted father. The Canaanite responds, Nice to meet you. How many children do you have? Uh, none yet. Oh, right, right. But then God added, I want to say some insult to injury. When Abram was 99, the Lord appeared to him reaffirming his promise to multiply him exceedingly. And then he changed his name to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. He's been waiting for 24 years since God first promised to give him a son. He still has no children except for Ishmael through Hagar, the handmaid. But now he tells everyone that God has given him a new name, father of a multitude. <laughs> Can you imagine it'd be like a a bald man <laughs> named Harry, and God says, "Let's change your name to bushy haired Harry." <laughs> Oh, when Abraham died at 175, he had fathered several nations through Ishmael's descendants and through the sons that he had with Keturah. But as far as sons through Isaac, Abraham died with twin 15-year-old grandsons, Esau and Jacob. He owned no real estate in Canaan except for the cave that he bought In order to bury Sarah, but he died in faith, looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. Through Abraham, excuse me, though Abraham did not see it, history has validated. God's promise, that his descendants both physically and spiritually are as many as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the sand of the seashore. The lesson for us is this. There has never been anyone who trusted in God's promises and was finally, or ultimately disappointed. God may delay the visible answers to his promises because he always answers in his time, not ours. We may not see the answer until we're in heaven, but he is utterly and completely trustworthy to keep his word. If he has promised eternal salvation, To the one who has faith in Jesus, then you can count on it to be absolutely true. (laughs) I love it. See, our hope of future salvation is certain also because God's purpose is unchangeable. The Greek word here in in verse 17 of chapter 6 Translated desiring is also related to the the noun purpose in the same verse and points to the deliberate exercise of his will. It means that God purposed to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, which here refers specifically to installing his son as a high priest forever according to to the order of Melchizedek. This points to his purpose to be glorified by sending his son to save a people, the heirs of the promise for his name. It is inconceivable that the sovereign God would purpose to send his son to redeem a people for his glory, but then leave the fulfillment of that purpose up to the so-called Free will of rebellious sinners who are, to use Charles Wesley's phrase, fast bound to in sin and nature's night. See if God had left salvation up to the will of fallen sinners, none would be saved, because there is none who seeks after God, according to Romans ten. Excuse me, Romans three, verse ten through eighteen. See, God calls his people here heirs of the promise. Think about this. Heirs do not choose to be heirs. If we could choose to be heirs, we'd all be waiting in line for the, the fortunes of people like Bill Gates or, or the Warren Buffets. But you see, heirs are chosen by the one who owns the estate. It is their prerogative to choose one person and overlook another because it is their estate and they have the right to dispense it as they choose. See, but many people today deny that right to Almighty God and say that He must give everyone an equal chance to choose to be His heirs. They stand the biblical doctrine of election on its head, saying that he foresaw that we would choose him and that he puts us on the list. But you see, that view robs God of his sovereignty. His sovereignty means that he chooses the heirs. God chose Abraham from everyone else in Ur and excluded Abram's immediate family members. He rejected Ishmael and chose Isaac. He rejected Esau and chose Jacob. Such choices are God's right as the sovereign Lord. And, and if you protest and you say, well, that's not fair, then you need to read Romans 9, verses 11 through 23, where Paul anticipates and answers that response by saying, in effect, "How dare you even raise the question that God is unfair? He has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. And you have no right to answer back to God." See, it was in it was Isaiah forty six nine through eleven that God says this. He says, "For I am God, and there is no other." I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. See, in that context, God is talking about raising up a pagan king named Cyrus to accomplish God's purpose. God can use anything and anyone that he chooses. God is not bound by the will of (laughs) proud humanity to do what he purposes to do. He has purposed to give an elect people to his son, And he will accomplish his purpose. Denying God's sovereign election makes assurance of salvation shaky. See, if it's up to man's will, well, best of luck to you because you're going to need it. But if our hope of salvation is based on God's purpose to the heirs of his promise, then your hope is certain and secure. Our hope of future salvation is also certain because God's person is incapable of lying. The author author states the obvious. It is impossible for God to lie. If he lied, he would deny his very nature as the God of truth, whose very word is truth, as indicated in Isaiah 65, 16, in John 14, 6, In John 17, 17, if God has said that Jesus has made purification for our sins, like he did in Hebrews 1, 4, and that he has entered within the veil as our forerunner, as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, then it is true. See, we're all prone, as frail children of dust, we're all prone to bend the truth when it suits our purposes we're vain and we don't want to look bad and so we twist things and we tell little white lies and we overlook reporting things on maybe on our income tax forms or that that might cost us more in taxes we withhold the truth when it is to our advantage to keep things undercover cover. But in spite of our propensity towards compromising the truth, we get offended if anyone challenges the truthfulness of our word, and we would be outraged if they directly called us liars. But notice here is the God for whom it is impossible to lie. He has never lied in all of eternity. When we doubt his promises, and especially his promise of salvation to the ones who believe in Jesus Christ, we are in effect calling him a liar. 1 John 5.10 says, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given Concerning his son. Do you believe God's promise concerning his son? Or are you calling God a liar? See, our hope of future salvation is certain because God's person is incapable of lying. So the author has hit three hammer blows to show that the hope of our future salvation is certain. God's promises have never failed. His purpose is unchangeable, and his person is incapable of lying. As if that were not enough, (laughs) he adds a fourth. Our promise, excuse me, our hope of future salvation is certain because God's pledge backs up his promise. See, God's bare word should be sufficient since his word is always, always, always true always has been, always will be. But when God says it with an oath or a pledge, he wants us to know that it's a done deal. To show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, God interposed with an oath. And because of the weakness of our flesh, God condescends to add the oath to his word to give us a double assurance, if you will. In verse 15, the author uses a human illustration. You know, when when men are having a dispute and they swear under penalty of perjury to do something, well, that ends the matter. They must do what they have sworn to do or they will pay a stiff penalty. But when the God who cannot lie interposes with an oath or a pledge, how much more certain is his word? You've got two unchangeable things. God's promise and his oath. These two things make our hope of future salvation, as it says in verse 19, both sure and steadfast. So why is this so important? What difference does it make in our day-to-day lives? See, the hope of our future salvation is an anchor to steady our souls in present trials. Here's a threefold progression of thought here. Our future salvation is secure for all who have taken refuge in Christ. The author identifies those whom he's writing in, along with himself, as "we who have taken refuge," and he does not specify what they have taken refuge from. But in his readers, um, his Hebrew readers, they would have immediately thought of the cities of refuge in the Old Testament, where the man guilty of manslaughter could flee from the avenger of blood, found in Romans—excuse me—in Numbers thirty-five. Uh, Verses 11 and 12 talks about that. These cities were a spiritual picture of the refuge that God has provided for sinners to flee for protection from the wrath to come. See, in verse 20 of our text, the author mentions Jesus as our high priest within the veil where God's holy presence meant instant death to any sinner who dared to go there. And although people's eyes are blinded so they cannot see their sin and God's holiness, every sinner needs a refuge from God's coming judgment. See, Jesus Christ is the refuge that God provided. The question is, have you fled to that refuge? Have you trusted in Christ alone to save you from your sins? If your hope is in good works, you are not safe. You are not saved. Your hope of salvation must come in Christ alone. Having taken our refuge in Christ, we must now take hold of the hope of our future salvation. You see, our salvation is secure because it rests in the promise and unchangeable purpose of God. It is not us holding on to him, but him <laughs> holding on to us. But you may wonder, well, why then does the writer encourage us to take hold of the hope set before us? If it depends totally on God and his unchangeable purpose, then why do we have to hope in him? John Piper puts it this way, What Christ bought for us when he died was not the freedom from having to hold fast, but the enabling power to hold fast. What he bought was not the nullification of our wills as though we didn't have to hold fast, but the empowering of our wills because we want to hold fast. What he bought was not the canceling of the commandment to hold fast, but the fulfillment of the commandment to hold fast. He goes on to cite Paul's statement in Philippians 3.12, where he says, I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I also, excuse me, for which also I laid hold of by Christ Jesus. See, Christ Jesus had laid hold of Paul by his sovereign grace. And as a result, Paul pressed on to lay hold of the hope of all that his salvation promised. Folks, this means that we must battle discouragement by taking hold by faith of God's promise to save all who take refuge in Christ. God's promise and his oath are two very strong, motivating forces that encourage us to grab hold of the hope set before us and don't let go. Then that hope becomes an anchor for our souls. See, the hope of our future salvation anchors us to wait on God in present storms. I mean, the main reason you need an anchor is to keep from drifting into things that would destroy you, especially during storms. Abraham had his storms as he waited on God. You know, two different moments of weakness. He thought that powerful men would take his wife from him which he would have nullified God's which would have nullified God's promise of a son through her and so he lied and said that she was his sister at another moment of despair he went into Sarah's maid Hagar and conceived Ishmael but in spite of these failures in hope against hope, he believed until God fulfilled the promise. See, we face numerous types of storms that threaten to rob us of hope in Jesus Christ. There are storms of false doctrine that can blow us off of our course. According to Ephesians four fourteen, we must weather them by holding holding firmly to the promise of salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. There will be storms of doubt when we question the Christian faith or maybe even the existence of God. We can weather them by coming back to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, which is the bedrock of the entire faith. First Corinthians fifteen verses one through nineteen If he is not risen, our faith is in vain, but if he is risen, then our future salvation is certain, and our hope can rest confidently in him. There will be tr- There'll be storms of difficult trials where we wonder why God is allowing them and question whether he loves us. We weather them by remembering that God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, has promised. He has promised to bring us through every conceivable difficulty to ultimate glorification. I mean, he talks about that in Romans 8, verses 28 through 39. Folks, there may also be storms of defeat where we fall into sin and, and dishonor our Lord and Savior. We can weather these, even these storms if we realize that our high priest is praying for us, is interceding for us. He's the mediator so that our faith may not fail and that by his grace we can be restored. As I bring this to a conclusion, you know, I heard of a a Christian who made a trip to Russia quite a few years back. And he felt conspicuous as he was walking down the streets of Moscow. And he couldn't figure out why, and he wanted to blend in, but it was obvious that people knew um, that he wasn't Russian. And he asked a group of Russian educators with whom he he was working with, whether it was his American clothes, you know, his jeans and the NBA t-shirt he was wearing. And they replied, no, it's not your clothes. He said, well, what is it then? And they huddled together and they talked for a few minutes. And then one of them kind of speaking for the group answered politely. They said, it's your face. My face, he laughed. How does my face look different? And they talked again and one of the teachers quietly said, you have hope. It shows on your face. See, as Christians living in a world that Paul describes as having no hope and without God in Ephesians 2.12, we should stand out as people of hope. The certain hope of our future salvation is the anchor that God has given us to steady our souls, even in times of storms. Folks, we ought to have the most hope. We ought to have the most joy. We ought to have the most love, the most laughter, the, 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 the incredible peace of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, a cheerful older Christian was asked the secret of her triumphant attitude, She said, I've read the last book of the Bible. I know how the story ends, and I'm on the winning side. We have a high priest be within the veil. He has promised to save all who take refuge in him. Let's take hold of our certain hope in Jesus. Our anchor of the soul is, is fixed securely in our lives through the work of Christ. And the pool of the other end (laughs) is within the veil in the eternal presence of the Lord. Now folks, that right there (laughs) is God's great gift to you and to each one of us. Oh, I love it. I love this passage. I love the book of Hebrews. I just want to thank you so much for tuning in and joining us. Next week, we're going to continue on in our our study of the the book of Hebrews. And we'll pick up in chapter 7. We'll talk about Melchizedek. And um, I just want to say, until then, stay safe. Practice good hygiene. Stay studied up in God's word. I want to say eat well and and get some exercise And whatever you do. Whatever you do, give God all the praise and glory and honor that is due his name. Folks, we hope to see you all very soon. God bless you. I love you. Your church loves you. And more importantly, God loves you.